Welcome to Young Minds and Big Questions. Today we have special guest Dr. Sam Storms to talk eschatology, the Antichrist, Mark of the Beast, and so much more. We got your questions and hopefully we got some answers. Check it out. Welcome to Young Minds and Big Questions. We're so thankful and excited to have our special guest, Sam Storms, Dr. Sam Storms. I want to just say that now, although he said we can call him Sam. Um, (laughs) He's with us uh, to talk about eschatology today. Um, I I told him earlier, I said I'm like a kid in a candy store because (laughs) he's had a big influence on me in the area of eschatology. I've read his, his book, Kingdom Come. Um, and then gone back and reread parts of it over and over because it is quite a hefty book. But uh, Sam Storms, thank you so much for being with us and welcome to the podcast. Well, it's good to be with you today. Looking forward to it. Sweet. Yeah, we've uh, we've had quite a few uh, listeners who have written in in various ways and said, can you guys do a podcast about eschatology? And so uh, Anthony and I were like, all right, well, let's bring in the master. And, uh, and have ask you some questions, have you talk about eschatology, and, um, and so we're thankful for that. But before, we would love to hear, uh, hear your story. You know, um, we know you're pastoring now, and, um, but how did, you, how did you come to faith? How did you come to write so many different books on theology and, and do what you're doing? Sure. Well, I'll try to keep this brief. Um, I came to faith in a Southern Baptist home. Uh, my, my entire family were Christians, and uh, so I, I distinctly remember walking the aisle, as, as we typically do in a Southern Baptist church, when I was nine years old, but I think I was probably born again before that. Um, went to the University of Oklahoma. I, by the way, I, I pretty much felt a, a profound sense of calling to full-time ministry when I was 10, so not long after I'd made that public profession. It was, it was a pretty profound experience. So I, I knew all along that I was eventually going to be in some form of full-time ministry. Um, Went to the University of Oklahoma after that to Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, Started at seminary in 1973. And uh, as I tell in my book, um, you know, I I sat under uh, what you would consider to be kind of the Hall of Fame of classical dispensationalists, uh, John Walvoord and Charles Ryrie, J. Dwight Pentecost. Uh, These were the men whose names were most commonly associated with that perspective, that particular perspective. Um, and it was during my uh, second year at Dallas that my views began to uh, become a little bit less precise, or let's just say my commitment to dispensationalism began to uh, diminish. Uh, and it was largely from, a, from a, an assignment I received in a New Testament exegesis class uh, on the Greek text of Ephesians, and I was assigned quite arbitrarily, but I think providentially, Ephesians 2, 11 to the end of the chapter. And uh, in doing my work on that passage, I came to to embrace the view that um, that there is only one people of God. It's the church, the true Israel, in, in which there are believing Gentiles and believing Jews. And so the whole paradigm of two separate peoples of God with two separate covenants and um, destinies, as it were, uh, just kind of began to crumble. 
So by the time I, I left Dallas, I graduated in 77 with a THM. Um, and having come under the influence of George Ladd, I was, I guess, what you would call a historic premillennialist. Um, and over the next, oh, six, seven years, as I, as I examined this, the issue of the millennial question, I eventually, um, uh, I guess, came out, <laughs> came out of the closet as an all-millennialist <laughs> in about 1984. And um, this book, Kingdom Come, really is the product of about 25 years of thought and research and reflection. Uh, I, I, actually, I actually produced and wrote a, an early version of it way back in the uh, late 80s and then decided to stick it in the drawer and come back to it many years later. So um, that's really kind of the journey. And uh, uh, my, my transition from the you know, a traditional premillennial view to an amillennial view has, um, has been met with some measure of derision by some of my former classmates and colleagues and uh, professors. But um, generally speaking, there's been a really positive response, and a lot of people are are being challenged because I, you know, I'm it's interesting by the way that you would uh, interview me at this time because I've only recently begun a sermon series at Bridgeway church here in Oklahoma city on the book of revelation. Mm. And I've, I've never uh, preached through it. I've taught to it a half dozen times, but always steered clear of actually uh, preaching a expositional series on it. And I think probably most of the people in my church are going to be surprised at, at what they hear because I think they, like most evangelicals, have embraced a somewhat literal and futuristic perspective on Revelation. So um, I, I definitely feel like I'm in the minority, but uh, that doesn't affect me because I, I've just tried to understand and interpret God's Word as it comes to us. So we'll see how that sermon series turns out. You might want to contact me in about a year and make sure I'm still employed. <laughs> You're telling me most people in your church haven't read your book, huh? I think that's probably a fair judgment to make, yes. I think a lot of them bought it and then said, oh my, 600 pages on eschatology? I don't think so. <laughs> well, I am looking forward to hearing those podcasts. Yeah, you, you do you do live stream they those, They come right? out every week. They come out the, the Sunday after, or the Monday after the Sunday, so... You know, people can go to bridgewaychurch.com, easy to find, bridgewaychurch.com, click on resources, and you'll see a little thing that says sermon podcast, and you can either watch them, they're filmed, video, or you can listen to them. And also, all my notes uh, from the sermons, the entire sermon manuscript is there wow. um, on the website as well. That's that's really cool. So, a lot of the terms that you used, amillennialism, postmillennialism, premillennialism, dispensationalism, when hearing those terms for the first time, it can be very difficult to kind of grasp and take in. So, can you just give us a, a definition of eschatology in broad terms? Sure. Well, it comes from uh, the Greek word eschatos, which means end or last things, and so eschatology is typically viewed as the uh, the events associated with the second coming of Christ. Um, I think it's much broader than that. I think uh, eschatology is just simply God's kingdom purposes throughout the whole of redemptive history, obviously with a focus on um, the return of Jesus. Uh, maybe a, a brief definition of those views would help. Uh, dispensationalism is probably the most difficult one to um, to define, and usually uh, people try to define it as a person who believes that God has seven or more unique epochs or eras in redemptive history in which he relates to mankind under different terms. But I don't find that 
that, that it's all that helpful because all of us are in some sense dispensational because we all recognize you know, the unique situation prior to Moses and in the time of the Mosaic or Old Covenant, and of course now the time of the New Covenant. I, really, to understand dispensationalism, you just need to remember that they believe that there is a very strict distinction between Israel as the earthly people of God with their own covenant and promises and the church, the heavenly people of God, with their own covenant and promises. And uh, they read the Bible through this lens of uh, well, this is talking about Israel, or this is talking about the church, and that is the fundamental distinction or distinctive of dispensationalism. Premillennialism, like the name sounds, simply argues that the second coming of Jesus will happen pre or before a 1,000-year earthly literal reign of Jesus. Um, the postmillennial view um, argues that the millennium in some sense is now, and it's being progressively manifest through and in the church in the power of the gospel, and that um, there will be a gradual but very um, real and literal transformation of the world. And uh, many post-millennialists are fond of saying that when Jesus comes back, he'll come back to a Christianized earth. Not necessarily that everybody will be saved, but the earth will have been transformed by the power of the gospel. The church will prevail in its fulfilling of the Great Commission. Um, the amillennial view is also postmillennial, because amillennialists, such as myself, also believe uh, that the millennium spans the age in which we now find ourselves, between the first and second comings of Jesus. The difference between the two is that amillennialists, such as myself, believe that the millennial kingdom described in Revelation 20 is what we call the intermediate state. It is that, um, that time of royal dominion exercised by Jesus right now over the nations between his two comings, and that those who die in Christ, those who die in faith, and are with him in the intermediate state share in a kind of a co-regency, the rule and the sovereign dominion of Christ. So, you know, I think, for example, of my hero, Jonathan Edwards. I believe Jonathan Edwards is experiencing the millennial reign with Christ right now in heaven, between uh, spanning the, the two comings of Jesus. And so uh, I also believe the second coming happens after the millennium. Now, I don't like the title amillennial, it's, but we're stuck with it, you know, because <laughs> when I say somebody's apolitical or amoral, what we mean right, it is, right. you know, it, it negates those things. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't negate the millennium. I believe very much in a very genuine and real millennial kingdom. I don't think it's l restricted to 1,000 years. I think it's uh, the present age uh, characterized by the reign and rule of Jesus with his saints in heaven until the time of the second coming. So basically, the um, the amillennial view differs uh, from the premillennial view in that um, I don't believe that there's going to be a literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus on the earth between his second coming and the introduction of the new heavens and new earth. So that's a that's a whirlwind tour of <laughs> the of views in eschatology. Cool. Yeah. Now, how does it how is it different from uh, postmillennialism? Is it only the uh, if things are going to get better versus things are going to get worse idea, or is there something else that differs those two views? 
Well, that's the primary difference. In fact, you know, post-millennialists uh, like to call people like me pessimistic post-millennialists, and, <laughs> and I call the post-millennialists optimistic amillennialists. <laughs> right. Um, that is the major distinction. Um, most post-millennials, and, and by the way, it should be pointed out, there are varieties of post-millennialism. Some of them say that... Um, that the millennial kingdom, as it progressively unfolds, is primarily soteriological. It has to do with the salvation of the vast majority of people on the earth. Then there are what we might call cultural postmillennialists who say that with this increasing uh, number of, of, of people who come into the kingdom of God, there will be a uh, a quite literal transformation of the structures of society, political, governmental, educational, entertainment, uh, finance, economics, um, and, and and so on. So some post-millennialists see a complete renovation of the, the fundamental structures of our society prior to the coming of Jesus. Others say, no, it's primarily simply the view that the gospel will succeed. It will, through the power of the Spirit, witness the uh, the salvation of the vast majority, but not necessarily all, of people living on the earth prior to the coming of Jesus. So, um, and again, post-millennialists want to keep the millennium as being manifest through the church on earth in some manner. And that's another difference. An amillennialist such as myself understands the millennium to be a description of what is what we read about, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, where it says, and he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. That mm. reign of Christ right now, you know, Ephesians 1 talks about all principalities and powers have been placed underneath his feet. He is ruling sovereignly from the right hand of the Father together with his saints. That is, I believe, what we have in view when we talk about the millennium. So those are the primary differences. Okay, now I'm going to throw... I'm going to throw one more definition out for our our listeners because I know uh, a guy like John Piper, and I think you actually already mentioned this term. But what is the difference between now historical premillennialism versus just premillennialism? Sure. Well, yeah, John uh, and others, and like uh, George Eldon Ladd, whom John studied under, by the way, in seminary, um, embrace a form of premillennialism that is not dispensational. So, for example. A dispensational premillennialist would argue that the primary purpose of that 1,000-year earthly reign of Jesus based in Jerusalem is to uh, fulfill to the Jewish people, uh, the elect among ethnic Israelites, the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that the church will remain distinct from Israel, that we will in some manner share in those uh, in the fulfillment of those promises, but that the church has its own set of covenant blessings. And so um, the dispensationalists would, would, content, would argue that there is a unique and special privilege for um, elect Jews as over against elect Gentiles. John and George Ladd and others of the historic premillennial camp, Wayne Grudem would also fall in that camp, would say that, no, there's only one people of God, and in the earthly millennial reign, uh, whatever blessings come, whatever fulfillment of Old Testament or New Testament prophecies there may be, believing Jews and believing Gentiles together and equally share in those blessings as the one people of God. 
So again, the, the primary distinction then again is whether or not you hold this distinction between Israel and the church as two peoples or whether you see the church as the true Israel of God in which there are believing Jews and Gentiles who equally share uh, as co-heirs of all the covenant promises. So, uh, Dr. Storms, historically speaking, was there a consensus among the early church fathers in terms of eschatology? Was there a predominant view? No, there wasn't. Okay. Um, it, uh, you know, I write about this in my book. There, you know, some dispensationalists have tried to argue that the early church fathers were dispensational premillennialists, and that is simply not true. And I give documentation for this um, in my book. Some of them were premillennial, but a number of them were also amillennial. So there's no dispensationalism in the early church. That really didn't emerge as a very clear and distinct view until the 19th century and the Plymouth Brethren in the United Kingdom. Um, but no, there. I think there are variations. Uh, Charles Hill has done uh, an excellent work in a book called Regnum Kylorum, um, the Heavenly Kingdom, in which he argues that uh, the predominant view was amillennial. Really? Uh, but yeah, but there are there are variations, and you you can find representatives of both a pre-mill and an all-mill view. You know, there are some who argue for a a literal one thousand year millennial reign, and others such as Augustine. Who, who would contend against that view. Okay. So you've given us a, a kind of definition of all of the different terms and some of the history. What was the main reason, what were some of the main reasons that led you to choose the amillennialist position? Sure. Um, well, I can remember very distinctly, uh, you know, going back, as I shared a minute ago, um, by the time I graduated from Dallas Seminary, I was, I was almost completely out of the dispensational pre-mill camp, but not quite. But over in the subsequent years, as I studied this more thoroughly, um, at, at one point I sat down and for an extended period of time I did a lengthy examination, as best I could, of all the texts that describe the second coming of Jesus and what happens. In other words, when Jesus comes back, what occurs? And I kept coming up against about five or six consistent themes for example, when Christ comes back, the natural creation, the, the physical realm that has been subjected to the curse, will be redeemed and renewed and restored. And when Christ comes back, all hope of uh, salvation ends, that this is the day of salvation, that uh, beyond the second coming of Christ, there is no uh, opportunity for salvation. Uh, I read in numerous texts that when Christ comes back, there will be one unified judgment of all mankind. And particularly, the non-elect are described as being um, cast into the lake of fire and eternal punishment. Um, I kept seeing that there was a consistency in uh, the resurrection of the body, that this happened for both elect and non-elect at the second coming. And then finally, um, perhaps one of the most important elements is that I saw just over and over again that when Jesus comes back, it marks the end of physical death. The, the final enemy, as Paul calls, calls death in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ will uh, destroy at his second coming, uh, is physical death. He banishes it forever. Now, a lot of people might say, well, what's the big deal about all that? Well, here's the big deal. If you hold to premillennialism, you can't believe any of those things. Because premillennialism has physical death still ongoing during the 1,000-year reign. It still has people coming to faith in Jesus. 
it divides the resurrection into a multiplicity of differing resurrections for differing people throughout redemptive history. It has the final judgment of the non-elect happening one th- at the end of the millennium. Um, so over and oh, it also has, for example, the, uh, the curse being lifted from the natural creation only at the end of the millennium. So I said, wait a minute. I'm bumping up against some 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 conflict here. How can there be this 1,000-year period of history following the second coming, in which all these things are clearly stated? If you have, if you believe in premillennialism, you have to believe those things occur. And yet, I'm reading over and over again that they can't because this is what happens at the time of the second coming itself. So it seemed to me that the at the second coming. We see the final judgment, the resurrection of the righteous and the, and the unrighteous, the, the defeat of physical death, the termination of all hope to believe in Jesus, the removal of the curse from creation, and the inauguration of the new heavens and the new earth. If I believe that, there's no place for a, an extended 1,000-year period following the second coming of Jesus. <clears throat> so I just finally came to the point where I said, I, I can't believe any longer that that there's this 1,000-year added-on period following the second coming of Jesus, these multiplicity of texts simply preclude that possibility. So that's kind of how it happened. Happened over time, but um, it it was pretty definitive and decisive for me. Yeah. Reading through your book, and and I really encourage people, if you're interested in eschatology, to, I mean, it is a 600-page book, but um, if it's a topic you're serious about and, and uh, it is worth it is worth the read, um, but I have a, a, a kind of a question for you. Do you feel like the linchpin of this whole discussion is really about the role of Christ and what did Christ really do on the cross, and then how do we interpret the entire rest of the Bible, the the meta narrative of Scripture, based on what He did? Would that be a good way of did He fulfill the covenant in the Old Testament? Did He not? Do you feel like that's the linchpin, or is there something else that kind of is the the key to this whole discussion? Well, it certainly is a critically important factor. Uh, whether or not it's the linchpin, uh, it may be, but you're you're exactly right. Um, that was one of the things also that that influenced me greatly is um, I, I saw over and over again that in the New Testament Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was typified and symbolized and foreshadowed in God's dealings and promises with Israel in the Old Covenant. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath, of all the feasts of Israel. He is the Passover. Um, He is, in fact, true Israel itself. He fulfilled in his life and death and resurrection um, the purpose that God had initially intended for the nation Israel during the time of the Old Covenant. So, um, yes, I, as I began to see the Christocentric, Christ-centered focus of the New Testament, that in him all the promises of God are yes and amen, that um, it radically transformed how I saw the flow of redemptive history as a whole and came to realize that um, kind of the dispensational premillennial view in many respects projects into a future on this earth things that have already been consummated and fulfilled in Jesus. And so I think when we look at Jesus in that way, I mean, he's the fulfillment of the temple, for example. That's why I have, you know, I'm, I'm pretty energetic in the book 
um, this might come be upsetting to some of your listeners, but the idea that the, anybody Jewish or otherwise in Israel will rebuild a temple has, is an offense to God. Jesus was the consummate fulfillment of God's purpose in the temple, and then we as his body are the temple in which God chooses to dwell. God will never again dwell or restrict his glorious manifestation to a physical structure. He dwells in us, his people, who are the body of his Son. And so when I began to see these things, you know, the idea that there's going to be a, you know, a temple in Jerusalem during this 1,000-year reign, I, I just think that's offensive to God. It's it basically to say that Jesus isn't who he said he was and didn't do what he came to do. It kind of leapfrogs the person and work of Jesus. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just recently finished a, about a 45-week series in the book of Hebrews, and uh, Hebrews just confirms again and again and again that the whole of the Old Testament was pointing toward and was fulfilled in Jesus. So, yes, coming back to your question, uh, certainly a linchpin, if not the linchpin, of, uh, I think, a proper way to understand biblical eschatology. Yeah, that's so well said. And I, I started getting into eschatology because I, uh, I was looking through iTunes U, just wanted to listen to a class, and I came across a, a class from Reformed Theological Seminary on covenant theology. And uh, I had no idea what covenant theology was. But it sounded good. I was like, hey, covenant, all right, that sounds interesting. And uh, and so I started listening to it. And to be honest with you, it just transformed the way that I read the Bible. Um, because I'd grown up in a traditional dispensational premillennial view. And, uh, and, and so that discussion about how we really interpret the, the Bible as a whole, how we read it, started to get me into the area of eschatology, which then led me to your book and and a bunch of others. But um, it's I found that hugely helpful. And for me, when I started reading the Bible through that lens of of covenant versus dispensation, seeing that it all points to Christ, He's the fulfillment. Um, it really it really changed uh, changed my reading and understanding of Scripture. So. Um, I appreciate that. Another uh, another follow up question with that would be is how does your view um, change the way not only you read the Old Testament because you kind of alluded to that, but also the way you would read the New Testament and in particular the Book of Revelation, which you're about to do a series in. Yeah, that's a massively complex question. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I kind of laid out to the people in the first sermon in that series the the uh, primary ways in which Revelation is viewed. And as you all probably know, uh, the vast majority of evangelicals take a very linear uh, reading of Revelation. And what I mean by linear is they think the beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, extending through the um, end of chapter 20, that we have this chronological sequence of events. One event follows another, which follows another, which follows another. And... Um, Basically, it's it's restricted to what's going to happen in the last seven years of uh, history before the second coming of Jesus called the Great Tribulation. And um, that's not how I understand the book. Um, I think the book of Revelation is somewhat, and again, here's another big word, instead of linear, it's somewhat cyclical in nature. And what I mean by that is there are multiple sections, and they're parallel, in which John describes events transpiring between the first coming of Christ and the second coming. 
And then he circles back around to the first coming, and he starts over. He describes again the flow of uh, church history from the first coming to the second coming. And then he kind of cycles back around, and he does it yet again, over and over again, these parallel portrayals of God's, of the kingdom of Christ in conflict with the kingdom of Satan that's consummated by the return of Jesus. So um, I, I, I read Revelation, yes, it certainly does describe the end of history. It, it most assuredly does tell us about the second coming of Jesus. But it also describes this, this cosmic conflict between Christ and the uh, dragon that has been ongoing for the last 1,900 years and will continue until the time Jesus comes back. So um, that's how I understand Revelation. I'm going to have to unpack that bit by bit for our people here, but um, that's my understanding of it. I don't, I don't think we ought to read it as if somehow it's just restricted to the last seven years of human history. I think that's a mistake. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, how I understand the book. Right. And would you say a lot of it, too, is... Um a lot of the fulfillment of, of what people see as a future event of Revelation is actually fulfilled at the fall of the temple in Jerusalem, 70 A.D.? Yes, that's a, that's a big issue. And um, I, de- I do believe, as if you've read my book, you know that I think the majority of what Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, in what we call the Olivet Discourse, he was talking about events that would come to pass within the generation of people then alive. And so if he was making this prophetic utterance in 33 AD, it was less than 40 years later in 70 AD when the judgment of God against Jerusalem and its temple reached its consummation. And so I do believe uh, that much of the New Testament is referring to that um, rather cataclysmic event. Um, you know, one view of the book of Revelation is that that's what the whole of Revelation is talking about, that it's not talking about the future at all. Um, as, as one, you know, person put it, uh, the farther we get from 70 AD, the farther we are removed from the events of Revelation. And uh, I can't, I don't buy into that view. I think it's got some strong points, and I want to acknowledge them. But I don't think you can squeeze all of the information in Revelation into that period uh, from about 66 to 70 A.D. I, I find that to be a little bit of a stretch. So I think, here's my view, if I, I can kind of make this, a, I hope I can make this clear. I would encourage people to view what happened in 66 to 70 A.D., and even from 33 to 70 A.D., as a local, what I call microscopic foreshadowing of what will happen on a global macroscopic scale at the end of history. So in other words, what Jesus prophesied was going to take place leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is kind of a template, if you will, or a foreshadowing of what was going to occur globally for the whole earth at the end of history when he returns a second time. So when when that perspective is taken... I think it helps us read Revelation a lot more clearly. So I'm going to have to unpack that a lot as I proceed through the book. Cool. 
So, Dr. Storms, I know a lot of people want to know what your view of the Antichrist is. So many people are looking for some sort of Hitler-type figure to come down and, you know, cause all this mayhem. and Obama. <laughs> now it's Trump, depending yeah. on what, what political camp you're in. No, but, yeah, that's yeah. true. <laughs> so, what's your theology surrounding the notion of the Antichrist? Yeah, you, you forgot one figure, and that was Ronald Reagan, because people said, no, wait a minute. His full name is Ronald Wilson Reagan, <laughs> and each of his names, each has six letters in it, so there's oh, 666. Six, six. Oh, so. wow. Oh, my yeah, goodness. Yeah, so you missed that one. Um, of course, he's dead now, so, <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm, I am still a little bit of a fence sitter on this, and let me explain what I mean. I think that the beast of the book of Revelation is a reference to the collective opposition to the kingdom of Christ in all of its various forms. So, for example, if you look back over the last 1950 years of church history, think about, for example, the, uh, the, the, the persecution of the churches in uh, the first three centuries of the history of the church, the attempt of Rome to wipe out the faith. Look at the Arian controversy, Arius, who rose up denying the, the Christ. Look at the uh, the corruption that entered in with uh, late medieval Roman Catholicism. Uh, consider deism in uh, the 17th and 18th century. Um, evolution in the 19th century. Um, you know, higher critical studies of the Bible. Um, today, the radical uh, pro-abortion movement. The the various political, educational, governmental, philosophical views, all of which are antithetical to the kingdom of Christ, that collectively is the beast. In other words, the beast is this collective image of all anti-Christian influences throughout the history of the church in the last 1900 years. So that is what I think the beast is in the book of Revelation. I, now, the word Antichrist never appears in the book of Revelation. It's only found in uh, in First John. Now, the question is, will there be a single individual, uh, an actual human being who emerges at the end of history, who in some manner oversees or energizes this transcultural collective opposition to Jesus in all of its many forms? I'm open, I'm open to that possibility. But I'm not persuaded by it. Um, now, the thing that leads me to be open to it is the fact that um, Antiochus Epiphanes in the middle of the second century B.C. was certainly a manifestation of what was called the abomination of desolation. Titus, uh, who led the uh, armies of Rome that destroyed and desecrated the temple in 70 A.D., is viewed as another, as it were, installment of this principle. So could there not then be one final embodiment of uh, the beast principle in, in the form of a single human being? Yeah, I think that's possible. I'm open to that. I'm just not entirely convinced of it as yet. So I, like, like I said, I'm a fence sitter right now on that particular issue. Yeah. How about um, how about the issue of the mark of the beast? Because you know, we we've got friends who are premillennial dispensationalists, and of course, everything, every piece of new technology that comes out is that's the mark of the beast. You know, it was credit right. cards or cell phones, and now it, you know chips and this and that. So, what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I don't think the mark of the beast has anything whatsoever to do with a tattoo or a, an implant of a computer chip or credit card numbers or the banking system or anything of that sort whatsoever. I think we have to read the Mark of the Beast text in the book of Revelation in the light of what we read in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14, where we are told that the elect of God um, are sealed by him as his own. And so I think the Mark of the Beast by which his followers are sealed is a parody. It's a, it's a demonic ripoff of God's distinct identification of his people. These are mine. And, of course, the mark in us is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And so I think the mark of the beast is simply, if you will, a metaphor or symbol for the loyalty of unbelievers to the kingdom of Satan in all of its many manifestations. I don't I don't think that there's going to be some literal mark imposed on people um, I don't think that's what Revelation's talking about at all. Um, so I don't think 666 is going to be branded on a forehead or a hand or anything else. Um, I think the mark of the beast simply refers to the demonic ripoff of the sealing of uh, the people of God. You know, it even talks about, I think in Revelation 7, about they're sealed on their foreheads. Um, in other words, it's God's way of saying, you're mine. You belong to me. I've redeemed you by the blood of the Son. And the, the, the demonic ripoff of that is the mark of the beast in which his people are set apart and identified as those who are loyal to him and his purposes. So that's that's how I understand the mark of the beast. So I you know, I probably shattered a lot of um, you know, bubbles there or balloons <laughs> or sacred cows and and uh, but Well maybe yeah. you made maybe you made a whole lot of people less anxious about the future and and uh, and technology and and, and what's coming out, which yeah. is a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, make no mistake. Uh, are there and will there be efforts on the part of certain people to control human behavior and track where we go and what we buy and, you know, and, and that sort of thing? Well, possibly. But I don't think that has anything to do with the mark of the beast. Right. So a lot of pastors might be questioning why it's even important to study eschatology. Um, how would you respond to someone who doesn't think this is necessary or thinks, oh, don't worry, we'll find out later? What are some of the practical implications of studying eschatology? Well, I think, first of all, we can't expect to grow much in our knowledge of God and to understand him in a way that would lead us to, to glorify and magnify him the way we should if we don't understand what he's up to in history. In other words, we need to we need to be able to stand back from the Bible and look at the sweep from Genesis to Revelation and stand in awe of the way God has orchestrated his purposes for his people to the glory of his son. And that's what eschatology is all about. It's it's basically being able to track the uh, providential dealings of God throughout history as he uh, pursues, as Ephesians 1 says, the, the, the uh, consummation of all things in Jesus, uh, bringing a bride to his son um, for uh, the glory of his son's name. So that's one thing. Uh, it, I think it's really important for Christians to, to be able to look at the Bible as a whole and say, oh, this is what God's doing. Wow. And that leads to worship and and um, absolute adoration of his power and the and the uh, incredible design of what he's doing in human history. 
And then secondly, um, I think eschatology is for the purpose of calling us to repentance. Uh, that's certainly the case in the book of Revelation. Um, and one of the signs of the unbeliever is that they refuse to repent, notwithstanding uh, suffering the, you know, the outpouring of God's wrath. So um, it's that. And then thirdly, and perhaps most important of all, um, is the principle we read in First John 3, 1 through 3, where he says, the one who has his hope set on this, that is on the return of Christ and being transformed into his image, purifies himself even as Jesus is pure. And Philippians 3, 20 and 21, where um, Paul contrasts the Christians in Philippi with uh, the, the pagans in that city. And he says something to the effect that, um, you know, our citizenship is in heaven from which we await a Savior who will transform this lowly body uh, into conformity with his glorious body. So it's, it's a powerful incentive to obedience and holiness and uh, ordering our lives according to God's will and by his grace. And then finally, uh, like I told the people in the first sermon on Revelation, it's all about the fact that God wins. It's, it's a reassurance. It brings comfort and encouragement. Um, you know, when we think about the book of Revelation, it was written to those seven churches in Asia Minor, which is today eastern Turkey. And it was written to encourage them in the midst of their suffering, don't give up, persevere, endure faithfully the tribulation and the trials that come your way, because you will be greatly rewarded at the return of Jesus. So I think those are some of the many uh, practical blessings in studying eschatology. And believe it or not, it also has political implications. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, yeah. Because I'm always asked, well, what about Israel? What about the nation Israel? Well, let me be clear. I am a, a fanatical defender of the nation Israel as it now exists and their right to be uh, in their land. And I think they are an ally of the U.S. and we need to support them in resisting the efforts of certain Islamic nations to, to, to wipe them off the map. But I don't base that belief on anything in the Bible. In other words, I don't, I don't base it on the idea that they have somehow a covenant right to that particular piece of real estate. I base it on the realities of history and um, international justice and, and the, the results of certain battles that have been fought in the last 50, 60 years. So I am a defender of Israel as a nation, but I don't believe that they exist now in fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Um, so, you know, that's going to affect, you know, certain political decisions and, and how you relate uh, internationally to what's going on. Well, and, and I'd love to hear, do you have any comments about even the comparison of national Israel today and biblical Old Testament Israel? And do they even compare? Um, what is the connection, if any? Uh, and is there a danger and kind of a blind support of anything that they do because we feel like, hey, this is God's chosen people? Well, God's chosen people are the elect. They are believers in Jesus. And the problem is, and this is something obviously we ought to pray about and, and, and seek to evangelize the Jewish people, they don't accept Jesus as, as, as Lord and Messiah as God incarnate. And so the, um, the, th the thing that perhaps unites uh, present-day Israel with Old Covenant Israel is that they are, as much as it can be established, ethnic Jews, physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
But as we know from Galatians 3 and Romans 2, ethnicity just doesn't factor into God's purposes any longer. It's not whose blood you have in your veins. It's whose faith you have in your heart. And that's why he says in Galatians 3 that uh, the true seed of Abraham and the true heir of the promises is Christ and those who are in Christ by faith. So I'm a Gentile. I'm in Christ by faith. I am the seed of Abraham and the heir according to promise. So ethnicity might be the one common link, but um, the the promises that God has made to his people uh, will come to pass only in and on behalf of those who trust in Jesus as Messiah. And so I do think we need to be careful um, about this unconditional support for Israel, regardless of what they do. I think we need to hold Israel accountable as we would Russia, Australia, France, and ourselves to the principles of international justice, I don't think they get a, uh, you know, a pass, as it were, simply because we have this idea that they are the covenant people of God. The covenant people of God are believers in Jesus. And correct me if I'm wrong, too, Dr. Storms, but I think you make this point in your book that even in the Old Testament, we see that God was more interested in a faith in the covenant of grace, even then the blood that flows through your veins. And we see examples like Rahab and, and, uh, and even those who come out of Egypt, um, sure. who are grafted in and become part of Israel and obviously are circumcised. But, um, even in, even in the old Testament, we see that same, uh, trend. That's right. And you know, the, we see it in the old Testament that outward circumcision was preeminently designed to point to an inward circumcision of the heart, uh, the new birth. And so, yeah, physical marks in the flesh and DNA in our blood, um, these, ma- these things don't matter to God, and they shouldn't matter to us. What ought to matter to us is do we share a common faith in the one Lord Jesus Christ? That's awesome. Beautiful. Man, this is uh, this has been really helpful. This has been great. I th- I forgot we were on a podcast, and I was just <laughs> I was just excited and trying to get all my uh, my personal questions in as well. So, uh, man, thank you so much, Doctor Storms. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Um, um, I hope that hope you all don't get too much negative uh, kickback from this. <laughs> well, you know what you've uh, you've taken the brunt of it more publicly than we will ever have to. So, uh, we appreciate you For real, yeah. and, uh, and, uh, we'll, uh, we'll look forward to any conversation that arise. And, um, and, uh, I, I think that's the, that's the heart of it. And maybe kind of, as we're coming to a close, would you just kind of share a little bit, uh, about the importance of having more conver- informed conversation about eschatology, uh, as we move forward, any any just kind of closing thoughts on that? Yeah, I, w- I do have one thought. Um, I, one thing I have experienced in my journey and my transition out of a dispensational, pre-tribulational, premillennial view to where I am today is I was shocked and really dismayed by how many Christians elevate this particular subject to the level of a primary or foundational or first order doctrine. And what I mean by that. I can remember when I, just when I made the shift from a pre-trib rapture to a post-trib rapture, and I'm well beyond that now, but people treated me as if I had denied the deity of Jesus. It was almost as if the the bodily resurrection were now in question, or I was no longer trusting in the, um, um, you know, the, the grace of God for salvation. 
And I just, I would just call all believers to realize that eschatology is important. It's vitally important, but nobody is saved or lost based on their view of Israel and the church and the second coming of Jesus and the antichrist and the mark of the beast and the like. And so let's keep our eye on those fundamental truths that unite us and not allow these secondary issues to divide us. That would be my, my kind of my closing appeal. Awesome. If you guys haven't read Kingdom Come, go on Amazon, get a copy. It's really, really good and really helpful. Yeah, and you can also check out the uh, check out that sermon series coming up. Once again, what's that website, uh, Dr. Storms? Yeah, it's www.bridgewaychurch.com. Bridgeway Church. Um, typically, if you... Um, yeah, just, you can Google my name in Oklahoma City and Bridgeway Church, and it'll eventually get you to that website. But that's where the sermon series will be posted. Awesome. And actually, I'll give you another little plug. Um, are you, I believe, are you still, do you still do verse-by-verse teaching? Oh, yes. Okay, so if you are, uh, I've listened to many of your sermons. If you want to dive into a particular book of the Bible or uh, a particular scripture that you've got a question about, sometimes those can be hard to find. Check hit, check out uh, their podcast because um, Dr. Storms does verse-by-verse verse teaching through through uh, entire books of the Bible. So it's really, really helpful to uh, come out with a really clear understanding of what God's saying. Thank you so much, Dr. Storms. Thank you, Dr. Storms. We appreciate it. It was my pleasure, guys. Enjoyed it. Awesome. Right. Keep up the good work.